welcome. Let's kneel for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I'm asking that you will bless us during this period, that you would help us to know what is right. We need your spirit. We need it every day and especially now. And so we ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Probably like most of you, I grew up in a home with human parents. And I think that I can prove that your parents blew it when they raised you without even knowing you by the very fact that uh, they were humans. Uh, this business of raising children, I understand without having any experience doing it myself, is extremely complicated. And uh, would anyone here who's raised a child at least confess that that's true, that it's a complicated business, this business of raising children? Yeah, um, I have met parents who are just perplexed to even raising two or three different children, just perplexed about how very different they were and how hard it was to adapt and know how to make one turn out right. So when I talk about when parents have failed, I'm not asking you to evaluate whether or not your parent or parents fit into the category of effective, efficient, good parents or ineffective, inefficient, bad parents. I just want to sort of drop that evaluation and have you just start with the idea that you have human parents and therefore, in some respect, they have blown it. Can you follow me from what I'm talking about? And um, I think that's probably fair. Another thought before we get into the message is that we live in an age when the church is largely unconverted. This is what the Bible teaches in Revelation chapter 3. The church is largely unconverted today. That means, in all likelihood, that you had parents who, however much they were Adventist, never really knew what it was like to have Jesus living on the inside. I'm, am I saying this because I know your parents and just see how very bad they are? I don't know your parents. I'm just speaking statistically based on Revelation 3. In all likelihood, even if you had very religious parents, it's very likely or extremely possible that you didn't have parents that really knew what it was to have a living experience with the Savior, and that's, that's the age you live in. That's likely. Because of the way this uh, sermon is titled, or this lecture is titled, people could misunderstand what I was thinking. Uh, initially, when I gave this lecture in Kettle Falls a couple of years ago, uh, it was called Disillusioned with Your Parents. And um, I was aiming the thoughts at young people so that they would know what to do now after they've come to that point in life. I think when I look at the age of those that are here, for all but four or five of you, you probably have already come to this point. It's, you get there maybe age 11 or 13 or some people 16 or 19 when you suddenly realize your parents are wrong about a lot of things. Sometimes you get there before you're right about that, and um, you think they're wrong about things they're right about. But I mean, there does come a point when the, the almost unlimited respect 
or honor you have for your parents is diminished by an awareness of their, I'm thinking foibles, but that's not a good word to use in public. Anyway, yeah, their humanity, yeah, thank you, that fits. For me, this happened around the age of 12. Somewhere right around there, so it was almost in conjunction with my own conversion. Uh, it really happened because I began reading the testimonies. And when I began to read, for example, councils on diets and food, and you know, when you're a young teen, you have a very black and white thinking, right? And so if you read, for example, something about cheese is not fit for human consumption, and then you go to supper, and there is cheese, and, and immediately you have an experience of disillusionment. Can you follow exactly what I'm talking about in this experience? And so I went through that right about there. And I didn't handle it well. And I'm just hoping in the process of speaking this out that some people in the world will handle it better than I did because I handled it poorly. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20 is a chapter that Adventist Jews in Bible studies on the Sabbath and the seal of God. But we only use two verses in the chapter, and we probably have no idea the context that they're in, and I'd like you to see the context. Ezekiel chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 5. And say unto them, that is, the children of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, in the day when I chose Israel and lifted up mine hand unto the seed of the house of Jacob and made myself known unto them in the land of Egypt, when I lifted up mine hand unto them, saying, I am the Lord your God, in the day that I lifted up my hand unto them to bring them forth out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had espied for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Let's just stop there at the end of 5 and 6. Do you see that God shows for his people the best? Can you see that? It, God speaks about it almost like he went spying all over the world to try to find the very best land. He spied it, he found it, and then he sent his people into that very place. It's just a precious picture of what God does. Those who have come in, I'm so glad you're here, and we are in Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20, we just read verses 5 and 6. Verse 7. Then I said to them, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I hope you can see that's quite rational. It's quite rational that after God had spied the very best land and intended to kick out the idolaters, that he said to his people, I want to move you there, so a preliminary step would be for you to put away your idols. Straighten up your life, get ready, and when you're ready, we're going to move. For those who did, came in, I really am speaking about this business of parents. I really am. Verse 8. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken, that is, listen to me. And did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes, 
neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So here they are in Egypt. God has found the best land for them. He prepared it. And now he's asking them to get ready to go. And how do they respond? You know, they don't respond. They don't change their life. And so God now says, instead of taking them there, he says, I'm going to pour out my fury on them right here in Egypt. But if you know your Bible history, you know he didn't do that. He didn't pour out his fury right there in Egypt. And the reason is in the next verse. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I have made myself known to them, and bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. Here are the Egyptians, and the Egyptians associate Jehovah with these people. And if God destroys these people, for example, maybe right there in, on the way to Canaan, if he destroys them for their idolatry, what are the Egyptians going to think? What are they going to think? They're going to think that Jehovah doesn't have the power to um, do what he wants to do. Yeah, I figured that out. Thank you. It's nice to have a wife, isn't it? It is nice to have a wife. And that's, I'm glad she sits on the front row. So now if I can get my attention back on track and get yours... In Ezekiel 20, in the first eight verses, we're looking at how God spared, spared Israel, but not because of Israel. He spared Israel because of his own reputation, because he wanted the heathen to know what he was like, and so he put off destroying them. Verse 10, wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths. Do you recognize verse 12? This is the, one of the two verses we use. I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them in the wilderness to consume them. Does that sound familiar? He was going to destroy them right here in Egypt, but he didn't do it because of the heathen. But now he takes them out and he teaches them how to live. And how do they respond to his teachings? Don't they ignore his teachings? They ignore his teachings. And so he's speaking now about destroying them right in the wilderness. Verse 14. But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I brought them out. Yet also I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all ants. In other words, God doesn't want to take these idolaters into the beautiful land, but he's not going to destroy them, so he puts them on a rotation program. 
and they are going to die in the wilderness. This way, he is able to not lose his reputation for power among the heathen, and at the same time, not reward the rebellious by taking them to Canaan. Verse 17. Nevertheless, mine eye spared them from destroying them, and neither did I make an end of them in the wilderness. Listen carefully. But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. What God did, and this is interesting for people who end up trying to prove that the Adventist church rejected God and turned away from him in 1888 or in 1933 or in 1989 or at some point, they might prove this. And if they prove it, I'm going to remember Ezekiel 20. That here you have that God's people rejected him outright and God rejected them back. But when he rejected them back, did he switch to a different nation? You know what he did? He waited for a different generation. And what did he say to the different generation? Don't do like your, don't do like your parents. I want to have you and to bless you. Don't follow the principles and example of your folks, is what he said to the next generation. So we ended at verse 19, and now we're going to go to verse 20. That was pretty what Amy was playing there, Miss Rachel. It was pretty. Verse 20, and hollow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You recognize this is the second verse we use in the chapter? Now do you know why there's two verses we use in the chapter? The first one was written to the parents, and the second one was written to the children, but it was the same idea written to both. Verse 21, notwithstanding the children rebelled against me, they walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and wrought for my namesake, that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen, in whose sight I had brought them out." I hope that this feels like a deja vu reading to you. What's repeated in Ezekiel 20, really almost four times, we're going to stop here because you get the idea, is that God cares about the heathen. And he knows the way the heathen associate his people with his message. He knows, for example, that the heathen associate the Sabbath with Seventh-day Adventist. He knows that the heathen associate our teachings about the second coming with us as a church. And if, for example, God decided to give us as a church what we richly deserve, and do you think we deserve anything better than what those people we just read about deserved? I think as a church, we really aren't much better, if any better, than they are. If he gave us what we richly deserve, even though we deserve it, it would be a disaster for the Baptist, Catholics, New Agers, and the Buddhists of the world. Wouldn't it be a disaster for them? 
because what they would conclude, they wouldn't conclude, oh, the Adventists were not doing good enough for their Lord. They'd conclude that we were judged by God because we were the offscouring of the earth. That is, for his own namesake. This is an important Bible idea, but it's only marginally connected with our message today. What I want to draw from Ezekiel 20 is that our parents are not necessarily our example. Is that clear enough in Ezekiel 20 that our parents are not necessarily our example? When the fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother, it does not say copy them. And in fact, copy in your father and mother is something that God has said very many places in the Bible not to do. Your father and your mother may have done well, and if they did, then copy that. But if they did ill, don't copy that. But in almost certitude, they did some things well and some things ill. And they were not your example. I'm thinking of my dad right now. My dad is deceased. He's been dead for 10 years. My dad was not even a Christian, but he was a Seventh-day Adventist. But he, but he wasn't a Christian. And he did not think that he was on his way to heaven. So he was not as delusioned as a lot of people are. My dad expected and knew that he was a lost man. He was a smoker, and a smoker that was never disciplined over this issue. And smoking killed him. He died of lung cancer. Uh, that was after, I mean, it took longer to kill him than it takes to kill some people. My father disciplined me well. If I ever have children, I would like to discipline them about the way my father disciplined me. Is my father my example? He's not, but he did something well. But doing something well doesn't make him my example, and doing something ill doesn't make him, anyway, I shouldn't discount what he did well. Let me tell you what he did well, just so you can do it well if you ever have children. My father spanked me when I did badly. When I disobeyed, I was not a child who could get away with disobedience. But my father never spanked me in anger. He sometimes spanked me while he was crying. But he would talk to me and then spank me, and it would be understood by me that I was being spanked for my benefit and not for his temper. Amen. That's well. He did a good job of that. And it probably made it easier for me to be a Christian than it would be for even some children whose parents are consecrated but who do that poorly. I mean, spank in anger or neglect to spank or any of the other options that could happen there. So if we take this first point, that our parents are not our example, I want to build on this just a little bit. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, and looking at verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, 
and whose heart departeth from the Lord. True or false? Parents are flesh. <clears throat> That'd be true, right? The parents are flesh. So could we say, just for the purpose of this talk, that it would even be true, cursed is the man who, what does the verse say? Who trusteth in man and maketh his parents his arm, whose heart departeth from the Lord. I guess what I'm saying is that your parents are not exempt from, from the independability of humans. Parents, being human like they are, if you make them your dependence in terms of spiritual stability, strength, and guidance, if you make them that way, your heart will not be stable with the Lord God. You will depart. Now, I have to add here something for the benefit of Amy. Is Amy still in this room? She is back there. So, Amy, if you're listening, pay attention to this. Parents are as God to us when we are born. And there is a real benefit to being a very small child if you have godly parents. That is, because as a small child you are not capable of putting your faith and dependence for wisdom and guidance on your Father in Heaven, you can't even visualize something abstract or someone who isn't there, and anyway, this just doesn't work for you. You can depend on your mom and dad. The trick of the devil here is that God never intended, I'm not saying what the devil says, I'm saying the truth, and I'll show how the devil makes a trick related to it. What God is trying to teach is that as you are dependent on your parents, as you get older, you become less and less dependent on your parents. At first, you need them for everything. Then you can uh, crawl without them and walk without them and find food in the cupboards without them and write your own name without them and then cross the street without them. And isn't this true that as time goes that you're less and less dependent on your parents, right? What God never intended is that you would switch from dependence on parents to dependence on self. What he intended is that parents would be teaching you all along the way to learn to depend on God instead of them for the things that are not within your own ability to deal with. I don't think many parents understand that, so not a lot of parents do it. And so during the teenage years, that special time when more than any other children are to transition from dependence on parents to dependence on God, the children end up transitioning instead from dependence on parents to dependence on nothing in particular. And that frustrates the parents to no end because the kids go oddly. And uh, have any of you done the oddly about that stage of life? I don't know. If I only saw two people nod their head. My wife nodded her head. Or maybe you're just nodding your head to be, you know, she did go oddly at that stage of life. Uh, God's intention was not that you would ever be independent. He doesn't intend for me to be independent. He intends that right now that I would feel like I really need help from heaven to give a lecture, even if I've given it five times, I need help from heaven to even choose my breakfast, even though I've done that for my whole life. 
uh, he really is intending that I would feel highly dependent on him. And when I get this highly dependent thing down, it creates such a feeling of comfort that you haven't experienced since you were three and had a blankie. Do you understand what I mean? It's this feeling that you're not, utter, you're not ultimately responsible for what goes on in your life. I don't mean that you don't have your destiny in your hand, but I mean that if you choose to depend on God all the way, whatever happens, he's going to take responsibility for it. And even if you die a miserable death, it doesn't even make a big problem. You still get to live forever. It's just a beautiful thing to be free from the responsibility of trying to handle yourself. So we're talking about what to do when your parents have blown it. And I hope you've gathered a couple ideas so far. One, that your parents are not, are not necessarily your example. And two, that God wants you to be dependent on him, not dependent on yourself as you wean yourself from dependence on your parents. Yeah, that is the idea. Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. What I skipped from my notes just now, I skipped a lot of passages that hammer home this idea that we should not depend on man. And if you ever want a big list of those, you can ask me, but they all say similar thoughts to the one we read in Jeremiah 17. Exodus chapter 20, we're looking at the fifth commandment. That would be verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God gives thee. I've met a lot of children who are very confused about how to apply this verse. What does it mean to honor your father and your mother? Let me tell you my own experience I had when I was 18 and what I understand about this verse. When I was 18, I had just finished a preliminary study of Ellen White's Councils on Education. If you are 16, 17, or 18, and even if you're 12 or 13 or 14, it's not like it's too early to get started. Did I skip age 15? Anyway, it would fit in there. Uh, Studying what Ellen, White's, what Ellen White says about education, you really ought to do it before you get done making your educational choices. I mean, it's highly ironic if the first time you really learn what she says about education is when you graduate from college. Does this make any sense to you what I'm saying? That's just, there's too much, there, the irony of that is just overwhelming to me when I think of how often this happens. So early is a better time. And I had just finished that, and I concluded that there were not many schools that were really trying to follow God's counsel. In fact, as I searched the world over, granted I had limited resources for searching, but you know, I was doing what I could as a teenager. I found three schools at that point that it seemed to me were trying to do that. This was one of them. Another one was in the Philippines. It was Mountain View College. I think I'm not going to tell you what the other one was, but I went to the other one. And um, as I was going through this list and trying to figure out these schools, I ended up choosing to go to one, and I told my parents. And my parents were not pleased 
not pleased at all. In fact, my dad had a pretty good job at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. And uh, that's where I grew up, near about half hour south of Fairbanks. And uh, that university would have let me go there for free. And that university has as its focus or as its special thing, science. And one of my gifts in life academically was science. And the tuition there back in 1990 was 40000 a year for the kind of thing that I would be doing. And I could have gone there for free. And my dad thought, of course, that that would be an ideal opportunity. Can you understand where my dad is coming from, from a secular perspective? But more than that, I had scored pretty well on some of those exams you take your senior year. And as a result, I had plenty of scholarships being offered to me. And I could have gone to really any school for free, aside from that offer. Plus, my parents would have paid for me to go to any school if I couldn't have gone for free. But the school I chose to go to, my scholarships wouldn't pay for, and University of Alaska would not pay for it, and my parents were not about to pay for it. And can you understand how they felt about this? I'd like you to understand their perspective as we're going through. My parents were thinking from this perspective, how will this man be able to survive? What will he do? How will he make it in the rat race of life? That, you know, there's a lot of competition out there for jobs, and it's difficult, and some people, they're, they're losing their houses, and what are we going to do? And, um, and then their son chose to go to a little unaccredited school, and it just felt to them like a disaster. I'm not going to finish the story yet because I want to look at the verses. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs. I don't know these references by heart, so let me get out my notes. Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs 10, verse 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. I think if my parents read this one verse only, they would think that I was not honoring them. Because in their view, what I was doing was foolish and was certainly not wise. But uh, my parents are not the ultimate uh, judges of what is foolish and what is wise. And a couple of verses I noticed. One is chapter 17, verse 25. Chapter 17, verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. Sure, I'm having the very same idea. The idea is that the way that I honor my mother and father is by living wisely. And if I live foolishly, it's a dishonor to them. But it's even more explicit in chapter 28. Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah, Proverbs 28 and verse 7. Whoso keepeth the law is a, what does it say? a wise or a discerning son. 
But he that is a companion of riotous men shameth his father. These are three of maybe a dozen passages in the Bible that teach this idea that I honor my mother and father by living an honorable life. And I shame my father and mother by living a shameful life. And that the best way that you or I can honor our parents is by living in such a way that our life shows that they raised us well, even if they didn't. That's what I'm saying. It's by living honorably that we honor them and not necessarily by doing what they wish. Jesus exemplified this in his life earlier than most of us ought to exemplify it probably. Turn your Bibles to Luke, Luke chapter 2. Forty-one. There we go. Luke two forty-one. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. So let's just identify one thought. If you're twelve years old, are you or are you not a child? In this verse, you are, aren't you? What if you have a perfect character? Are you or are you not a child? You're a child even with a perfect character at age 12, right? The child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And now we talk a little bit about Desire of Ages, because there's some things you can't find here that you find there about this story that are helpful, that guide you when your parents have not done well and you have to relate to them. Do you know how Jesus taught people much older than him? He asked them thought-provoking questions as if he wanted to understand or needed to learn something. It's not quite the same as asking leading questions as if you want to drive a point home or make it stick. Uh, it's, that looks more like arrogance than it looks like humility. But Jesus did this well. He was able to spot inconsistencies and incongruities in his elders and to ask them questions like, how do you harmonize that idea with this idea? And by asking questions, they had to think through the things they already knew and they would begin to feel like they had something to learn even from this young man. Jesus was asking questions as a way of teaching people who were not in a mentality to be taught. Your parents are, I don't know them, I'm speaking generally, generically, are like the leaders in Jerusalem. It is very hard for humans to be taught by their children. It doesn't feel right. 
it feels kind of strange. Plus, children try to teach their parents things, and the children don't know what they're talking about at all. And so you, right off the bat, when you try to teach something to your parents, you are on a bad, this is, you're, you're off to a bad foot before you even get started. And do you think you could learn something here from the Lord Jesus? What would be the proper way to teach parents? Humbly ask thought-provoking questions. Like you want to understand something. In church history, there's a story of a conversion that was done this way. It was the conversion of Lambert uh, in England by Bilney. Lambert was a persecuting priest. And he was famous for his cornering and catching and dealing with heretics. And Bilney was a famous heretic. Bilney wanted to convert Lambert. And he tried to think, how, how do you do it? You know, you're going to lose your life if you do this wrong. And Bilney one day knocked on Lambert's rectory door, knelt down before him, Lambert being a Catholic priest, and said, please, would you hear my confession? And he began to confess to the priest how he had been a good Catholic. And then someone had come and shown him this verse in the Bible. And he'd been confused. And he'd wondered about it. And then they'd shown him this verse. And the more he thought about it, the more it began to perplex him. And he ended up, as part of his confession, giving a, a sneaky Bible study to Lambert. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. This business, this means of teaching people who are not in a mode to learn, it's successful. And Jesus did it. I think we ended in verse 46. Is that right? Look down at verse 49. And Jesus said to his parents, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. What I learned from Luke 2 is even godly parents may not understand the things that God is asking me to do. Even godly parents may have a hard time dealing with the fact that God reserves the right to guide me directly. Is it clear that Jesus' parents had a hard time with this? They couldn't see that someone that was 12 could be taking directions direct from heaven. But I can testify from my own experience also that someone that's 12 can take directions direct from heaven. They can. But did Jesus do it arrogantly or with humility? It was with humility that he expressed. It was with meekness. And in fact, I think it says right after this, he was subject unto them. Or was that right before this? No, verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. When you put these verses together, you understand the subjection of Jesus. That is, he was doing what his parents said, but he reserved for his Father in heaven the right to tell him what to do. And if his Father in heaven told him what to do, he would do it with humility, but he would do it. Based on something that Sister Nelson shared with me yesterday, about a concern she had with something I said here. 
I can almost guess what she's thinking, so I'll just respond to it right now, all right? I'll respond to it right now. Is it possible that some semi-rebellious, arrogant young person could use Luke 2 as an excuse for just doing whatever they want to do and ignoring their parents' wishes? Of course it's possible. And if someone does that and then blames it on me, but I think in the judgment you can't blame it on me. I think in the judgment that you'll have to blame it on yourself. Jesus was subject to his parents, and it was when he was about his father's business that he wasn't doing it quite exactly what they had in mind. Uh, my father's business is not quite the same as whatever I jolly well pleased to do. Do you remember my own testimony? How was I choosing a college? Was it based upon just where my friends were going or what I wanted to do or the fact that my chosen occupation? Let me just scan my audience for a moment. I had, this morning at breakfast, I was sitting beside a man, a young man. I was just checking to see if he was in the audience, and he's not. And uh, he told me his life ambition. His, one of his life ambitions is mission-oriented. And um, I like mission-oriented ambition. And I didn't respond at all to what he said. But there was a thought in my mind. It is easy in choosing your mission option for life, what kind of mission you want to do, to do it partially or in some respect based on what you really enjoy doing. And what you really enjoy doing may or may not, but statistically may not is more likely, be what you are most useful to do. I will use my illustration for this because I can't say it very well. I imagine myself sometimes, I use word pictures to try to understand ideas, so I'm just sharing with you some of my thinking. I imagine myself in a foxhole with a bunch of other soldiers, and they all have their guns and their grenades, and they're there to fight the enemy. And I imagine myself being a concert pianist. I can't play the piano, this is a very silly imagination. And I mean, I play on the piano, but anyway, not like that. And um, I imagine myself being a concert pianist and saying to my buddies, it's very dangerous here, and I'd like you guys to protect me with your bodies from uh, shrapnel and whatnot, because it'd be a real loss to this world if I die, because I can play the piano really well. And uh, this would be a real disaster, so would you please protect me? And what do you think my buddies would say? I think that they would despise the idea that I think that my piano playing is more might makes my life more useful than theirs. Don't you think that they might despise that idea? What I'm trying to illustrate by this so far is that in time of war, there are some skills more useful than others. Being able to throw and to aim and to duck might be more useful than being able to play. Right? Now I'm in my real life here, my own experience when I was choosing an occupation. I think that what I really enjoyed doing was math. 
That's what I really enjoy doing. You can ask my wife. I still do lots of math. Sometimes I figure out how many seconds old I am while I'm taking a shower. <laughs> um, uh, uh, math, if you want to get an estimate for yourself, there's about 31 million seconds in a year, just over 31 million seconds in a year. And um, math is something that comes really easy to me. Also, my senior year of high school, I began canvassing. And in canvassing, unlike math, in math, I would be in the top tier of the 99th percentile ranking. That is, if you put me in a group of about 20 people all in the 99th percentile, I might even have an easier time than 19 of them. Math was really an easy thing for me. Put me now call portering, and I'm right smack dab in the middle of the average folk, not even near the more successful folk. And I would be near the less successful folk, except for I run while they walk. <laughs> Does this make sense to you, what I'm saying? In other words, by putting my whole drive and energy and force into the thing, I can only barely make it to average. And yet, when I began to analyze the situation of the world, my mediocre talent in canvassing was more useful to the kingdom of God than my very good or great talent in math. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? And I just think in choosing a life career occupation that I shouldn't do it just as if the universe doesn't exist. And it's just based on my abilities and skills and what I enjoy, that really there's a bigger picture. And the question is, what can I do that would be the most honor to God? What can I do that would be most useful to his kingdom? And that might not turn out to be quite the same thing as if I was trying to choose the thing that yeah, matches what I like the very best. I'm off topic. I don't know if you noticed that, but I am. I'm off topic about to do when your parents blow it. Um, but I'm speaking to the same age levels I was then, and so I'm going to come back to what we're looking at. So in Luke 2, we learn that not only are our parents not necessarily our example, but they may not even understand what God is calling us to do. Well, now, we've been looking, in Luke 2 at least, at someone who had godly parents. Uh, what do you do when your parents are demanding your time or attention? And God is also asking for your time and attention. I've seen this so many times. And you can find half a verse on this topic, but I didn't write the reference down and I don't know it. But you've read it yourself. The man came to Jesus and he wanted to follow him. But he said, first, let me go and bury my, did he say father? I think that's what he said. Let me, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him the most odd thing or interesting thing. He said, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and, you know, it was time for the man to go work. If you want to read interesting material, look up this phrase, bury or dead bury, uh, in the Ellen White CD-ROM. It'll pull up the Ellen White statements where she quotes this verse. And I'll just tell you what you're going to find. 
you're going to find that Satan wants to derail people from doing God's work. And if, for example, uh, Brother Louie here is doing God's work, and he's having success and he's winning souls, the devil will try a number of avenues to get Daniel to leave the work. He might try to discourage him. Does that work sometimes, discourage people? Do they leave the work or discouragement? He might aim at this one, discourage him, or he might offer him a promotion, a, a better paying job somewhere else. Has that ever happened to any of you being offered a better paying job to leave God's work? I've seen that happen. To, so I've told some people, if you want a good paying job, just sign up as a call porter. It doesn't pay well, but someone will offer you one as soon as you sign up. And uh, he might offer them a job, but sometimes the devil can't find anything here that will stop Daniel. Then the devil tries something else. He finds the weakest family member of Brother Louie, and he harasses that person and tries to bring the person into a disaster, whether it would be a threatened divorce or a lawsuit or suicidal depression or something, really focus on this person. And the goal of this thing is when this person is having their tragedy is to talk and say, you ought to call Daniel and ask for help. I call this the haunted home. Ellen White describes this, this, this scenario and it's the closest thing to a real haunted home that exists. If Brother Louis falls for this trick and abandons the work of God to rush over here to Miss Weakling and try to help, you know, he might be able to help Miss Weakling some. Maybe with God's help, he might even really bless Miss Weakling. But more likely than that is that Miss Weakling is going to end up being weak when this whole process is done also. That's the more likely scenario. But the worst of it is the devil has just learned something about Mr. Louie. And never again can Mr. Louie be successful in God's work without the devil attacking his family. Never again, because the devil learns really quick. And this is the incredible thing you'll find in these statements, is if instead Daniel will stay in the work out of faithfulness to principle, that heaven will commission angels to go to the home of Miss Weakling and say to the demons, stand back. Push them away and accomplish more here than Daniel could have done by his own personal presence. And also the devil learns his lesson quickly. Never again harass the family of Mr. Louis. Does that make any sense to you what I'm saying? This idea of uh, you can make an idol out of the precious business of your family, and it ought not to be. Yeah, I can. Matthew eight twenty two is where you find this story. Because some persons who listen to this in audio verse, and maybe even some of you that are in this room, were really hoping that it would be a seminar in parenting, 
I'm just going to say a few things from the book Education about parenting. It won't take me long. And those of you who are young, you might be a parent someday, so this isn't like a waste of your time, right? Do you know, continual censure bewilders the mind of the child. That's a direct quote of Ellen White, and it's some excellent common sense. Let me try to illustrate it by an experience of a lady in my church plant. Uh, she's a single mom. She has several children at home. And raising several children, even with a husband, is hard work. But to do it as a single mom is harder work, right? You understand this is really difficult. She's trying to raise them to a high standard. And one day, Heidi and I were visiting her. And her boy, I guess he was 10. I forget how old he was when this happened. He had a bicycle. And he was having such fun. This is what he was doing. He was riding his bicycle. And then he would jump off it and let it keep going without him. And it would go 10 or 12 feet, or maybe 20 if he was going fast enough, and then it would fall over. <laughs> He's just so enjoying that. Can you imagine a young, a young boy enjoying that? He was enjoying seeing how far he could get it to go without him. And his mother came out and saw it. And she let him have it for damaging his bicycle. I don't mean she was yelling. She was, she was collected, but she let her words do what her volume wasn't doing, and that is make him feel that he was being very unintelligent to act that way with his bicycle. Now, I want to share with you what I shared with her afterwards. If your son is nearly perfect and he does that, you probably can afford to correct it. It would be better if you don't ruin your bicycle. Wouldn't that be better if you weren't ruining your bicycle? You probably can afford, if your son is nearly perfect, you probably can. But if your son's character, because of whatever has been in the past, if he's making mistakes every hour and doing something wrong, maybe even every 30 minutes, he can't take rebuke every 30 minutes or an hour. He can't. He wasn't made to be able to handle that kind of thing. He really needs a lot of commendation, maybe even for the fact that he does such a good job of jumping off the bike. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty special. I don't know if I can jump off a bike and have it keep going. <laughs> he needs a lot of commendation, and he can only handle the occasional rebuke without becoming, well, what does Ellen White say? She says it's fatal to effort. That is, when too much censure, when people get too much censure, young people, instead of fixing everything, they just give up. And then you can't get them to do right for anything. So if you want to find a good example of how to balance this, in the book Education, the chapter and illustration of his methods, you'll find there how Jesus dealt with Peter, James, and John, especially Peter. Peter was like a boy that made mistakes all the time. Well, he was a boy that made mistakes all the time. And Jesus dealt with Peter so wisely that Peter didn't rebel and, in fact, stayed close to Jesus and ended up finally being a faithful man. It's an amazing thing, and you ought to read it. I think I told you already about how my father disciplined me well. 
to discipline someone while you're angry is useless. It's useless. You might as well let them get away with it as discipline them while you're angry. The reason is that the anger in your discipline takes the selflessness out of it and makes it seem more like a reaction than, than an act of love. And children learn better naturally than they do uh, thoughtfully. What does that mean? I mean it's natural for them to be angry and reactionary. And when you discipline them with anger, you build into them a bitterness and anger reaction that all their life troubles them. Have you ever met someone who has this internal bitter reaction? And you don't want to curse your child with this kind of internal bitterness. So you don't want to put it in there. Someone hearing this, or that will hear, is going to ask, well, what do you do if you have this internal anger? Probably you got it from your parents when they disciplined you in anger. Probably it's in there from there. Not even do we have time in the next 60 seconds to answer that question. But audio verse, I think you will find at many sermons on how to overcome sin. And I recommend looking some of them up. Inconsistent follow through. That is to say, to threaten to do something and then not to carry through your threat so confuses the mind about God that it makes it hard for the human to submit to God's discipline because God follows through with his threats. I remember you had a teacher, I think you, you still have a teacher, Graham Maxwell, down there in Loma Linda. Some of you might be from the South. Graham has a book out, uh, I don't know, it's something about friends. I forgot the title of the book. Servants or Friends, yeah, it has a book. And I remember reading that book, a, a couple paragraphs, where Graham Maxwell uses the illustration of a parent who says, I'm going to kill you if you blah, 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 blah. And then Graham asks a group of children if their parents have said something like that, and most of them raise their hand. It's a very sad part of the story. And then he says, how many of you really thought your mother was going to kill you? And of course, they didn't think so. And this for Graham is evidence that God's threatenings shouldn't be taken seriously. Let me just say it's evidence of a contrary nature. It's evidence about how bad parenting confuses how people read the Bible. That God is looking that we will have some consistency in what we're doing. Now, I really blew it. I used up my whole time and only got through half of the material. So I recommend to you Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 438 through 441. There you'll find how Jesus related to his parents when they did not understand educational choices correctly. Did you know that Jesus was the only one of his brothers and sisters that didn't go to the schools of his time? Mary and Joseph were not homeschooling parents. I mean, they weren't the kind of parents that just chose to homeschool their children. Jesus chose to be homeschooled. 
And you can find why, when he was done, that he did not go to the schools of the Pharisees. You'll find four or five reasons there. And when you look at those reasons and think them through, I think you'll find that they have more applicability to today than you ever would have guessed. And I just recommend that you take a read of them. All right, let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would find a way to lead our generation into Canaan. That you would honor your name by the church. And that you would do for this generation what our ancestors would not let you do. Individually prepare us to go the right way. And we ask for your spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.